Touch them all, Joe! When we envisioned the format for the Backstage Project podcast, we wanted to find great leaders and unearth great stories from across the spectrum of sports and entertainment. We're excited to have Martin Perlmutter from Speaker Spotlight on the podcast today. Martin, together with his wife, Farah, have been innovating in an area of the business we don't hear a lot about, speaker bureaus. A few years ago, they also launched the Spotlight Agency, which we'll also get into today as we explore with Martin the crossover that their business has with the sports and entertainment industry. Martin, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me here, Mark. Great to be here. Well, great. I think some of the stuff that will come out as Martin and I chat today, I mean, there might be the odd nickname that we call each other that some of the listeners may or may not get. We also met a long time ago. We're not going to get into that unless it's really super relevant to the chat today. And uh, and over the years, whether it's playing sports or, or or Martin has been there as an advisor for a few entrepreneurial endeavors that I've ventured into, and all these sorts of crossovers we've had over over a lifetime. So it's it's great to get together in this format and, and talk about what what him and Farah have built over what has been 25 years. So to start off with, you know, you offer speakers for dozens of topics, as I was uh, looking into on your website before we chatted today. And I'm assuming that there's generally some gray areas uh, between kind of what you do, what agents do. You know, you also have an agency, so that's an interesting aspect to your business, what, what managers do for talent, and then maybe what talent kind of do on their own. And I'm broadly using the word talent because it could be professors, they could be musicians, it could come from all walks of life. So maybe help us understand how the business kind of works. Yeah, well, um, again, thanks for being here. Great to, great to chat with you. Um, you know, the way I, be, I think best to look at the business is that, you know, we, as you say, we represent talent, intellectual talent, in some cases, like you mentioned, academics, professors, former, uh, you know, political leaders and so forth, as well as, uh, you know, best-selling authors, athletes, uh, people from the arts and, and entertainment and culture industries. So a really wide range of people. And, you know, our, our niche in, 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 the, in the marketplace is really focusing on speaking engagements. So just as an author would have a literary agent to help them get uh, book deals and uh, an actor would have a, you know, a talent agent to help them get commercials or television or movie roles. Uh, and a, an athlete would have a sports agent to negotiate their, you know, their contracts with their, uh, you know, with their teams. Um, we really fulfill that role, but very specifically in this world of professional speaking or speaking engagements. Um, you know, broadly, we're in the events industry, really. That, that's the industry that we really work in. And, and, uh, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a different world. Uh, you know, there are some general managers and agents who try to get into this space, but it's all like most businesses, it's a relationship business. And you need the relationships, not just with the talent, but with the, the conference and event organizers who, who make these decisions, who hire the talent, who bring them in to speak to their groups. So the kinds of events that you're talking about, maybe you can drop a few names um, of events that you have a close relationship with. Um, we, we'll get into kind of who are the talent or people you represent that appear there and what they might be talking about. But what kind of names are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the events, the, our, our, uh, the majority of our business is really in are really private events. So corporate and association meetings. So, you know, a lot of companies will have their, uh, you know, national sales meeting or national management meeting or, you know, regional meetings. 
uh, or department or divisional meetings. So a lot of them are internal private events where companies bring in speakers to uh, educate, to inspire their people, to provide them with new tools and perspective to, to grow, to further the objectives that the, the organization, the company may have. Um, so that's probably half of our, our business is corporate. Um, about a quarter of it would be associations. So, you know, there's an association for just about everything. And um, almost all of them have conferences, annual conferences, where they bring in guest speakers. So they usually will have their industry experts and their industry speakers, and then they usually have a few keynote speakers, you know, maybe to kick off the conference or a luncheon speaker, or maybe to, to close out the conference. And so that's where we come into play uh, is, you know, helping them find those people, not just not necessarily their industry experts, because they know those people better than we do, but the outside perspective that can, that can bring something different to the table. And then, and then the other sort of, I guess, 25% of our business, if you will, would be um, what, what I would call, I guess, public sector. So um, uh, everything from, you know, education conferences and healthcare to, um, to uh, not-for-profits, uh, some charities have, you know, large uh, uh, fundraising events where they might bring in guest speakers. So that's the majority of what we do. Um, you know, some of the events you might be interested in or, or uh, aware of, uh, public facing, there's um, there's a, a series of events called the Art of Leadership conferences. So that's a, those are conferences that take place in various cities across the country, and they'll bring in a number of high profile uh, speakers. They, their audience is 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 more general. They have people from a wide range of companies and organizations. So that would be one that some people may be familiar with. And then other like large, um, you know, larger events like the Elevate conference, for example. Uh, things like that, where it's uh, it's a little bit more public facing, but uh, really the you know the vast majority are actually um, private corporate or industry association uh, conferences and meetings. All right. Well, thanks for explaining that. I think for for people who aren't familiar with the industry, they they might be familiar with some of those events you're talking about. I'm certainly familiar with the events you just mentioned there at the end. Yeah. Um, really, how people get up on stage is a little bit of a mystery. Um, right. But I get it. It's a business or. It's part of a business and how they uh, build culture. I mean, and we won't get into all the psychology of this. There's a number of other podcasts that help with corporate culture and psychology. I'm actually listening to one called Work Life with Adam Grant right now, uh, which is part of the TED series. Fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoy that one. Yeah. So there's a saying that all actors want to be rock stars. And if I, I would bet that you know, actors, rock stars, and athletes you know, all dream about swapping places. So my question for you is, uh, do they really dream about being paid speakers? Um, I don't think they dream about it. I, I think that uh, I think they're probably happy with what they're doing. But there's certainly a lot of of athletes and 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 actors and who are starting to get in more and more into this field. Um, and uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that as as we see in society, a lot of changes and and, and positive changes where athletes. Uh, thankfully, are not just people who play a sport, but have a voice and can lend that voice to to causes that are important to them. Um, being an advocate, being able to get out and speak about topics that are uh, important to them, uh, is a way for them to get uh, you know get their messages out and, and and influence you know people and have a positive impact. So you know we're seeing more and more of that, which I think is great. And 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 uh, certainly there's a number of athletes, a number of, of you know actors and, and, and uh, people in the entertainment industry who see speaking as a way to communicate important messages, to connect with, with audiences that they may not normally have a chance to connect with. And uh, so we're seeing more and more of that. And I think it's just sort of a society uh, 
change and evolution as we are starting to see our actors and our our, our, uh, our sports heroes as uh, as more than just people who play a game, but actually people who have an important voice to share. Um, I think also more and more, you know, I, I think we see a lot of athletes in particular who, you know, as an actor, your career can go on, you know, for decades. But most athletes realize there's, a, you know, they have a shelf life and most of them aren't going to be playing their sport, you know, you know, much past their mid thirties, you know, unless you're, uh, I guess, LeBron James or, or some unicorn who can, you know, seem to play forever. Tom Brady, I guess, is another one. But, um, you know, a lot of athletes realize their playing days are going to come to an end at a relatively young age. And there's a lot of things that they want to do after that. And, you know, speaking to corporate groups, for example, is a really great way for some of them to just build their network and, and, and get to know people in, in the corporate world. And, uh, and have them get to see them and, and see another side of them as well. So I think that uh, that that's also part of it is as uh, as we're seeing more and more athletes and entertainers uh, branch out into other fields. Looking back on on the history of you know, Speaker Spotlight and the Spotlight Agency that you have today, you know I know that there were a couple of of athletes in particular uh, that. Uh, that really formed what I would call the, the the reputation of of speaker spotlight right at the beginning. And uh, I mean, the ones that the ones that come to mind for me were you know, a legendary Canadian, uh, an iconic Canadian in uh, Paul Henderson. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also uh, Hurricane Carter. Yeah, maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you met these these folks and. Uh, and whether it's the role they played in the launch of your business, and I'm just, again, we're just taking us a, a little bit of a sports lens here, but those are both individuals who did, um, you know, either did sensational things in a moment or had, you know, really unbelievable things that we still can't completely fathom today, but are very relevant today, happened to them in their past that also define them. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So, yeah, you're going to take me back into a time machine a little bit, but it's, uh, it's, it's fun to go back there. Um, so, you know, when, when Farrah and I started the business, it was just the two of us working from a spare bedroom in our apartment. We didn't have any speakers. We didn't have any clients. We didn't have any industry contacts or, or experience. So we were really starting from the beginning. And it was just like, you know, I literally bought a book on how to make a cold call because I'd never made a cold call in my life before this. And um, and we were just, you know, I was probably making 80 to 100 calls a day calling conference and event organizers, as well as reaching out to some speakers and and potential speakers to see if there might be opportunities to work with them. And uh, so one day, this would be back in like 1996 or 97 to date myself. Uh, but I'll, I remember the timing well for, I'll explain why in a minute. Um, so I'm, you know, dialing for dollars as usual, you know, making these 80 to 100 calls a day. And I happened to get someone on the phone one day who's working on an event. And, you know, you know the theory behind sort of cold calling, if anyone's been in sales, is if you make enough calls, you know, 99 out of 100 are going to be a no. You're going to get someone's going to hang up on you. They're not going to return your message. Whatever, uh, you know, you're catching them at the wrong time. But one out of a hundred, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll get someone on the right day. And so I reached out uh, to this person, and they were working on a conference. And they said, you know, we want to do a hockey theme event. And um, uh, so we're looking at some ideas. And one of the ideas that came up was Paul Henderson. And so it was 1997. And the reason I remember is the 25th anniversary of the famous goal he scored in the Summit 72 Summit Series. So she said, you know, is that someone that you work with? And I said, you know, oh, yeah, no problem. Of course, uh, we can we can get involved for you. And then I got off the phone. I'm like, how do I get a hold of Paul Henderson? You know, I've never spoken to him. So made a few calls um, and uh, 
eventually someone pointed me in the right direction. This is early days of the internet, we got to remember too. So you couldn't just Google someone and, and easily find their number. Uh, so I tracked Paul down and uh, left him a message uh, at his office. And he called me back pr- fairly soon afterwards, like probably within a few hours. And he's kind of said, you know, uh, yeah, tell me more about who you are. And he said, you know, actually, I, um, I don't have anyone helping me with this right now. And it's a big year. It's 25th anniversary. And I expect to be, you know, pretty busy. Um, can you meet for, for coffee at the Prince Hotel tomorrow afternoon? And I was like, yeah, let me check my schedule. Empty. Surprise. So, <laughs> so the next thing I know, I'm having coffee with Paul Henderson, you know, a Canadian icon and a very nice man. He was incredibly kind. And uh, yeah, we just started working together at that point. And, um, you know, it was interesting because, you know, when, you, when I think back and again, we really didn't know what we were doing in those days. We didn't really know anybody in the industry to just be able to have someone like Paul Henderson give you an hour out of his day and, and spend the time with you and, 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 put some trust in you was just a huge thing for us, you know, just to be like, wow, like we just met Paul Henderson and we're working with him now. So that was, that was pretty cool. And, um, you know, worked with him for, for many, many years and, uh, um, just an amazing Canadian, amazing person. Um, Ruben Hurricane Carter, that's, that's a whole big story. And I don't know if we have time for all of it now, but, um, uh, the, the backstory there is that, um, you know, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, big music fan, as you know. So, you know, I'm familiar with the song Hurricane, one of the few protest songs uh, that, that Dylan wrote after his initial uh, early part of his career in, in the early and mid 60s. Um, and then when I was in law school, I took a course in civil liberties and I kind of learned a little bit more about his case uh, there and then uh, had a chance to see him speak. Uh, and, um, it was just one of those mind blowing experiences where I just couldn't believe like how just incredibly, incredibly powerful that, that time was where I walked away from that and just made, changed my mind on a few different issues around death penalty and so forth. And so, um, so that was sort of always in the back of my mind. And when we started the business, we were trying to think of some people that might be interesting. And so I reached out and it was not easy to track him down. I remember he was not an easy guy to find, but I knew he lived somewhere in Toronto and I probably made about 15 or 20 calls to different people who kept giving me different numbers. And then finally, uh, I called this number one day and, um, and the, the voicemail came on and I can't not great at impersonations or impressions, but, um, this deep baritone voice came on the voicemail and it said, if you got this far, or this close to me, you know what to do after the beep. <laughs> and so I left a message, terrible message, probably. I couldn't believe it was actually, it sounded like, you know, it was definitely his voice. And I left this message thinking he'll probably never call me back. And within an hour, he called me back. And a few days later, Fair and I met him. Uh, and, um, you know, at that point, we'd already met a few, you know, Olympic champions and, you know, hockey heroes and, you know, some people, but I was kind of terrified, to be honest, like, you know, this is a man who has experienced things that nobody uh, should ever have to, 22 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, for those of you who aren't familiar with with Hurricane's story, and as soon as we met him, he just put us at ease, he was just kind, warm, and it started a, a, a great relationship and friendship that we had with, with Ruben um, right up until the time he, he passed away a few years back. So uh, that was amazing. And then that was before the movie with Denzel Washington came out. So first couple of years with Ruben, it was hard. You know, we were trying to get him speaking engagements and we we're getting him some, but it was pretty tough. And then I'll never forget the day he called and said, uh, 
hey, you know that that movie I was telling you about that's been been in discussion for the last ten years or whatever. He says it's been greenlighted and they've cast Denzel Washington to play me. So do you think that's going to help with the speaking agents? And I remember saying, oh yeah, I, I think that'll help. That'll help a lot. And uh, you know, and then the movie came out. He invited Fahrenheit to attend the premiere with him. We were sitting just a few feet away from him, watching his story played out on the screen in front of us. And when the film ended, and this was before it was released in the theaters. Um, just the entire theater stood up spontaneously, turned towards him, you know, gave him the standing ovation. And we were so close to him, we could just see, you know, the, 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 just the smile on his face beaming. And it was just, it was a pretty cool moment. And uh, I had a lot of great, great uh, events and, and uh, opportunities to, to engage with the hurricane and le- learned a lot from him. Just a really interesting, unique individual. Oh, it's a great story. Thanks for making it kind of brief for our format. I mean, I can, I can tell you that, you know, knowing you as long as I have, you know, and uh, I don't know Farah as well, but you know, the, the qualities that you have, how genuine you are, how trusting you sound. Uh, and uh, my, the track record is that that's how you are from, from what I, and my perspective anyway, you know, those relationships, especially those early relationships and uh, being able to bet on each other, which certainly that's what you did with, with the hurricane and then yeah. being able to realize that, uh, that that's incredible. I'm, I'm really glad that we, we got to recount that story. The, um, while you were mentioning the answering machine and, you know, I, I try to bring myself a little bit into, uh, my, my own personality into the podcast any way I can, not trying to make light of anything by the way, but always trying to take a little bit of a silver lining and a different perspective, you know, I'm assuming that Hurricane's answering machine and his message was recorded kind of before that Seinfeld episode came out where George has his voice message to the theme of the greatest American hero. But uh, <laughs> but it didn't play out that way. But uh, still, I need my Seinfeld and Springsteen references wherever I can get them. Any Seinfeld reference is a good one as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so there's another client of yours in particular, um, someone who um, – is not a rock star, is not an athlete, is is not an entertainer. At least they weren't when they first kind of came on the scene uh, in Canada anyway. Um, now, he was an astronaut or, and he was on a space station. But since then, he's kind of turned into a rock star. Um, certainly a, a, a fan when when uh, you know, the Maple Leafs were playing at home. He, he was generally in the stands, at least on a Saturday night. I remember seeing him there at, at Air Canada Centre at the time. So what's so special about Chris Hadfield? Oh, uh, what isn't? Uh, you know, we, we, I got to have this running joke that, you know, nobody's perfect and uh, we all have our flaws and, 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 and so, some more than others. Uh, but uh, Chris is probably as close to a perfect human being as I've met. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, he's, uh, I think he's uh, 60 years old now, if I'm not mistaken. Chris, if, uh, if you ever hear this and I've got your age wrong, I apologize, but I'm pretty sure he's around 60. He's probably physically as fit as any 60-year-old you'll ever meet. Uh, intelligence-wise, his intellect is off the chart. Obviously, you have to be brilliant to to become be capable of, you know, commanding the, Canadian, the uh, International Space Station, becoming an astronaut. Um, he not only has uh, uh, the left brain, he also has the right brain. So he's not only a scientist, He's also, you know, an artist and a musician. And he not only has the IQ, he also has the EQ. You know, we meet lots of people who are brilliant in terms of their IQ, but can't relate to people. His EQ is off the chart, too, just in terms of his ability to relate to people and engage. And he's just one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And the persona, public persona that you see, Chris, is the way he is uh, all the time. Um, just, uh, just an incredible human being. So I'm sure Chris has some faults. 
I've known them now for, I guess it's about six or seven years, I think. Uh, I haven't figured out what they are. I'm sure if you, you know, gas is family, I'm sure they could probably tell you, but um, he's, uh, he's just an incredible human being, uh, just incredibly well-rounded, uh, brilliant, you know, uh, curious, uh, and just kind and compassionate. And I think he exemplifies, you know, all the qualities that as Canadians in particular, you know, we love to, to, to and we, we celebrate, but, you know, I've seen how his, um, how he resonates with audiences all over the world. So not just Canada, but he's a huge star in the UK and in Ireland in particular. You know, he's done speaking tours in Australia. He does actually quite a bit of speaking in the US. And I wasn't sure, that was the one market I wasn't completely sure if his, uh, you know, Canadian uh, qualities would be as appreciated. But he, whenever he speaks to US audiences, the feedback that we get is that this is the best speaker we've ever had in the history of our conference. So he's just uh, truly a rock star in every sense of the word, but, but even more important, just a great human being and uh, one, of, one of the great you know, uh, honors in, in, in my life to have the opportunity to work with, with Chris and to learn from him and just see how he conducts himself uh, in all aspects of his life. So um, yeah, just, just a, a thrill for me to have the opportunities to work with Chris. No, he's he's so inspiring to so many people and, and, a, and a, a voice uh, and a beacon of hope uh, during many, many a challenging time. And that I don't know if you're behind all of those opportunities or uh, there's other people in the mix. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit in terms of the, the way the industry is shaped. Um, yeah. one, one thing I'll say about Chris, too, and I know this the, the, the idea of this is uh, backstage, right? This this podcast is. So the, the, I think it was the very first uh, or one of the first two speaking engagements that he did um, after he came back from the International Space Station and retired from, from the Canadian Space Agency. Um, so he did, a t- a, he did a talk that summer. I think it was in July that he uh, had, um, had sort of re- officially retired from the Canadian Space Agency. And in August, he spoke at a large conference in, uh, in Toronto. And so he asked me to attend and he asked me, if, uh, which I was going to anyway, of course, and, but he asked me if I would um, sit in the audience to watch and then head backstage afterwards and meet up with him uh, to get private with some feedback. So I'm sitting in the audience. There's a few thousand people there. Uh, Chris walks out on stage. You know, again, like this is, I think, the very first or one of the first couple of, of appearances, uh, public appearances or presentations that he's made. And he gets a huge standing ovation, you know, walks on stage, immediately 2,000 people on their feet. Not surprising. But the amazing thing is that he received two more standing ovations, one in the middle, spontaneously in the middle of his talk, and then a third and final and largest standing ovation at the end of his presentation. And so um, so one thing is that I always say, you know, you judge a presentation by whether the person gets a big ovation at the beginning of their speech or at the end of their speech, because there's a lot of famous people who walk on the stage and everybody is excited they're there and they get a huge ovation. And then if they're not any good, it's, you know, that their name gets them about two minutes. I think Seinfeld, to go back to Seinfeld reference, was one of famously said that being Seinfeld, I think, buys him about a minute or two at the beginning of his act, and then he actually has to be funny. Um, so being, being a celebrity, being famous, you know, might buy you a minute or two at the beginning of your talk, but then you actually have to be interesting and engaging and inspiring. So, so Chris, you know, three standing ovations. So afterwards, I head backstage. We're sitting in, we go back to the green room, and it's basically his inner circle. It's his wife is there. Uh, his uh, his son, his daughter-in-law, and his son's uh, college or university roommate. I, I believe we're the only people in the room, and me. 
so I'm like, wow, like this is, you know, this is interesting. So, so we sit down and Chris basically says, okay, I'm going to go around. And I want you to give me specific feedback on how I can make this presentation better. And he goes in a very specific order. And I think he did it because he, he knew if he picked me first, I would have just said, that was amazing. I think you're good. Three standing ovations. You got this figured out. But uh, he didn't, he, he actually went me last. And I heard the other, what each of the other people were saying, and they were giving him very specific feedback. Like, you know, at the, at the 14 minute mark, when you showed this slide, you know, like things like that, very specific. And he was furiously writing down notes. And so when it got to my turn, I blabbered something that hopefully was useful. I was just trying to think of something that I could add. I'm supposed to be the expert here. So trying to add something of value. But it said something to me about, about the person that Chris is, because most people would say, look, I commanded an international space station. I've flown spaceships. Like this speaking thing isn't that complicated. I think I got it. And I think three standing ovations and they just walk out of there feeling pretty confident, maybe even arrogant that, uh, you know, that they got it. But the way Chris is, is he actually, I felt like it was in a NASA debrief where he was basically re-engineering the whole talk and just looking for small incremental ways to make it better next time. And he really wanted specific feedback. And so I, I just think that that's you know, one of the reasons that makes one of the things that makes him so special, not just in speaking, but I think that's the way he approaches everything he does is just how can I make this better? And just the humility, you know, of, of, of that is, is just inspiring to me. And I think it's a great lesson for anyone in terms of no, no, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how smart you think you are, there's always ways to get better. And, uh, and I, you know, that's one of the gifts in doing this type of work is getting to learn from people you know like Chris and see what makes them tick and what makes them great and hopefully a little bit of that rubs off on me wow um the um the perspective that you've had over these 25 years I could see why you and Farah have stuck with it for all this time it's not just a business is it you you also you are the audience and, and you have a perspective and a point of view and and maybe your kids over the years have been able to get some of that as well it's a very unique position that you find yourself in and it's you're you're this sponge that continues to soak this up and i we'll talk more about it on our chat today but the the spotlight agency is a good example of how you know you continue to learn you continue to evolve we may not be able to achieve the level of uh perfection that maybe chris is trying to achieve but it's certainly uh the the motivation to challenge yourself to, to be the best you can be Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we first started this, you know, we said to, our, to each other, we said, you know, when this is no longer fun, it'll be time to do something else. And fortunately, 25 years later, you know, we're still having fun. I mean, it's not always easy. This has been a particularly challenging year for most businesses, including ours, but we're still having fun and we're still learning new things every day. And, and, and you're right. I mean, that's been one of the great things about this is just, you know, this opportunity. I'm, I'm a big believer that the two biggest things that influence people in their lives are the books they read and the people that they hang out with. You know, if you read interesting books and hang out with, with great people, some of that's got to rub off on you. And so, you know, so we're fortunate to have this opportunity to, to work with, you know, such a wide range of people who've been, you know, achieved success in their respective fields, whatever those may be, and see some of those attributes that, that, uh, that, may, that they may have in common. And again, try to, try to take some of those and put them into practice in our own lives. And so I think it's been, pretty transformative experience in that way. And, um, you know, I think hopefully I'm a better person uh, as a result of it. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, so at this point, yeah, we're with no plans to do anything else. Uh, I hope some of it rubs off on our kids. You know, can't, of course, you can't tell your kids really 
much of anything. I'll do the opposite probably. But uh, uh, and we don't we try not to talk about work that much uh, around our kids. But um, you know they they've seen and had the ch- chance to experience some of these things themselves. So hopefully uh, it's, it's serving them well now. They're both off in university, so uh, now they're they're on their own. And, and I'm just hoping that some of it sunk in. Maybe and we'll see. They're, they're much smarter and wiser than I was at, at their age. That's for sure. How could they not be with all these experiences that you provided for them? Um, so looking at myself for a moment, you know, I've had some success in my career, uh, pretty interesting roles and experiences. I'm also teaching at a you know, top business school. Um, still, you know, no one has offered me more than a free few nights of a hotel for speaking. Uh, now that was in Vegas, so you know that that was okay, but I still had to get there. Um, you know, is there any proven recipe to being a sought after speaker? Um, do I need to write a book first? That seems to be a thing. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. So there's no one right way to do this. Um, certainly writing a book helps. So there's a guy we worked with for years who had a 25-year career in marketing communications, very successful. And he was speaking about, speak about creativity and creative thinking and the creative process. And then he wrote a book on it. And then he became the expert. And his speaking career really jumps to the next level. And I just find it funny because, you know, 25 years of doing it, uh, you think would be enough, but by literally writing the book on creative thinking, he became sort of, you know, one of the go-to experts on that topic. So, so I think there's a lot of value to writing a book, but it's much easier said than done. And, you know, it's, it's very easy for me to say to a prospective speaker, oh yeah, just write a book. And, and, you know, because it's hard, writing is hard and, and, and getting it published and getting it out there is hard. Um, so, you know, we've seen, you know, there's some people who have, you know, a platform uh, that isn't given to them, they've earned it, but whether they're an astronaut or an Olympic athlete or something like that, someone like that who has a platform. Uh, and so they can use that to, to help, uh, you know, jumpstart their speaking career. But most, most of us mere mortals don't have that. And, uh, but there are many examples of speakers who have been incredibly successful, despite the fact that they're not known for some huge accomplishment or achievement in, in a particular field. And I think the things that they have in common is, is that, that um, you know, one is they, they have deep expertise. So they're speaking on a subject that they really know inside and out, they've lived it and breathed it for years. Um, number two, they're very passionate about it. So they, they love it. You know, they, um, you know, they live and breathe it, breathe it. That's, I think, a big thing. You know, it's, it's more than just a job to them. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a career. It's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's something that's, you know, more than just, you know, sort of punching the clock, obviously. And, um, you know, and then in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, it is a performance. I mean, it's, it's got to be authentic and genuine, but, you know, you got to be able to engage an audience. And there's people who are really smart and really know their subject matter. And yet they just either it's part of it could be just God given talents or whatever you want to call it. Some people have a gift to communicate, but other, you know, people I've seen have gotten a lot better and they weren't fantastic at the beginning and they've worked at it. And it's like most things you can, you can work at it and you can get better. Um, I don't think that a bad speaker can become a great speaker, um, but I think a uh, you know a bad speaker or not a, a, someone who's not so can actually become a very good speaker. Um, and and I've seen people like that who have really improved over the years just by by working at it, by getting out there. Uh, and and there's one one speaker we worked with uh, for years who uh, I remember he told me that he did something like 100 or 150 free presentations before he ever got paid to do one. And by doing all those, I mean, that's a lot, but by doing all this, you know, you work at the kinks, you figure out what works, what doesn't, because I'm a big believer that before you're charging for something, it really needs to be 
something that's going to deliver a lot of value. You know, you don't want to be charging a fee and, and then getting up there and sort of making it up as you go. So, um, so if you're, that's something you're interested in, uh, keep, keep with it, Mark, uh, <laughs> keep working at it. And, All right. Well, th- well, thanks for answering the question. I was going to say that you know, you're not completely sliding me. Uh, so it, the, the, no. the process is not start a podcast, become a paid speaker. So I got to write a book and then we oh, can cool. have a serious conversation. Yes. A book, a book will certainly help. But I, I think that, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you do what you do really well, if you have, you know, expertise and passion on a topic, and if you're getting out there and just speaking to whoever will listen to you, the word will get out. And, um, you know, we work with a, a, a speaker named Simon Sinek, who many people may know. He has one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. Uh, I think it's the third most uh, watched TED Talk. Last time I checked it, it had something like 35 million views. It's probably a lot higher now. And, you know, he started, he, he published his book. I think the marketing budget behind it was zero. It was a first-time author. Uh, nobody had ever heard of him or Start With Why, which is the title of his book. And he started speaking in people's living rooms in New York City, believe it or not, where he'd go and he'd speak to a group of friends about an idea. And, and then someone would come to him and say, hey, I've got a small company. Can you come and talk to my employees about this? And he'd go and he'd speak to maybe a 30-person company. And then, then the audience just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until he's like one of the biggest you know, uh, names, if you will, the biggest stars on the global speaker circuit now. Um, and it started, it, it was never, I think, a plan for him. He never woke up one day and said, I want to be a speaker. He just had an idea. And that idea just basically caught fire and um, and just took off. And it was true word of mouth. Uh, there was no publicist behind it. Uh, there was no marketing machine behind it. It was just pure uh, word of mouth and, uh, and genuine sort of uh, uh, buzz, if you will, that uh, that helps him spread his message. Yeah, he's competing. I mean, just to drop a few names that I'm familiar with, you know, whether it's uh, Scott Galloway or Malcolm Gladwell uh, or um, no, I'll leave it at that. I mean, those are a couple names that quickly come to mind as well. Seth Godin, sorry, where I mean, these are the names that I would suspect he's competing with for some of the audiences. Um, you don't represent any of the other folks, right? We work with Seth. Um, you know, he works with a lot of different people. So, uh, but you know, we work with Seth with, with Seth Godin. He's fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's in that upper echelon. Of, you know, you mentioned some of them. Certainly, there's a handful of others. But that that upper echelon of you know of speakers who are not you know they're not famous athletes or movie stars. They are uh, famous, if you will, because of their ideas. And and um, and uh, yeah, he's he's in that 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 group although it's interesting if you ever ask him who he competes against he would say none of those people that he just competes against himself to get better at what he does um you know he was once on a call years ago uh, and the client said you know we're looking at these other speakers as well as you why should we hire you and um uh and his answer was those are all amazing speakers and i'm not going to tell you why you should hire me over them because any of these people would be great i think what he said was you know, what I can tell you is this, I'm a better speaker today than I was six months ago, and I'm going to be a better speaker six months from now than I am today. So your events in six months. So if you like what I'm doing now, you're going to like it even more in six months. And and I just think that that's such a great way to look at it. We, we've always tried to do this. We don't really see ourselves as competing against other agencies. We, we see ourselves as competing against ourselves and to be a better company, you know, this year than we were last year and, and, and just keep that, keep improving. And if you do that, then I think, you know, you'll, you'll continuously improve. And uh, it's just a great, a great lesson we learned from Simon. Now that, that culture that permeates 
not just inside your business, but through the people you associate with. It's a common theme that we've learned a lot about today as we've chatted with you about this. Now, your your industry is uh, like like every industry. We're not singling out any industry in particular, but your industry, there's a lot of change going on because of COVID and you know whether conferences and in-person events of all kinds are needing out of necessity and health reasons to change their format, whether that's a public event or a private event. So looking at your offering and the impact that this has had on it, and I know it's still rather early in, 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 in what we understand to be the timeline of, of how this is going to impact our lives. You know, what are you doing to keep you know, your roster of speakers, uh, one, still trusting you uh, to be able to represent them and then keep those bookings flowing? When clients start think, talking about we might have to cancel, I, my thing was like, hey, if the Leafs or the Raptors are playing in the, the ACC or the Scotia Center, whatever it's called now, um, uh, you know, and there's 20,000 people in there, you can have your conference next door at the convention center with 1,000 people. But as soon as the NBA and the NHL uh, put their seasons on hold, then I realized, oh, boy, we've got an issue here. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, COVID hit our industry particularly hard. Um, for us, what that looked like was, in a couple of days, in the middle of March, uh, we had over 500 speaking engagements wiped off the calendar. So basically everything that we had booked for the rest of March, April, May, and into June. Um, so that was really chaotic and difficult. You know, basically we had to undo all the work we've been doing for the past, you know, several months. Um, and then when sort of the dust settled uh, and it, we realized that this was not going to just, things were not just going to come back in the fall, but we're actually probably looking at a much longer time with no live in-person events. It felt a little bit like staring into the abyss, to be completely honest. Um, so we made a decision very early on that we had to fully pivot, if you will. I know that's the, the word of the, the year probably, but we had to fully move into the virtual realm. And so we realized that that was literally our only chance uh, for survival, because how do you survive in the events industry when there are no events, right? And if someone had told me at the beginning of the year that something was going to happen that would basically wipe out every event from the second week of March, through the end of the year and beyond, I would never believe that could happen and that any of our companies could survive uh, in our industry. So we, we went fully into virtual mode. We started working with a, a group of our speakers that we felt had uh, off, you know, offerings, topics, content that would be particularly relevant for organizations uh, dealing with all the, the fallout from COVID. Um, and so for the first, uh, those first few weeks, it was just working with our speakers and our marketing to get these offerings ready, start getting them out to the market. And it was slow in the first few weeks and months of this. Um, you know, there's that diffusion of innovation curve that probably most people are familiar with, um, you know, where you've got your, your innovators and your early adopters, and then you got your early majority and then your late majority and then your laggards. And so, you know, the first few, you know, from March through, I'd say April and May, it was just a very small percentage of clients who were jumping on board with virtual speaker speakers and speaking offerings. Um, but over time, we've seen uh, that clients are more and more embracing it. You know, one of the things that we did is we started a virtual speaker series. So every two weeks, we have a different speaker. We typically have about 500 clients each attend each event every couple of weeks. And, um, and it's proof of concept. I think that when at first, a lot of clients were very skeptical that that a speaker could deliver a impactful message in this type of you know, virtual platform on Zoom or whatever platform someone uses compared to being in a room on a stage in front of an audience. But when they started to see, you know, wow, like, you know, I remember the feedback from the first few, a lot of the feedback from clients was, wow, like I had no idea virtual presentation can be this powerful because a lot of people's experience up until that was just really 
boring webinars, you know? And so, uh, so now we, you know, six months into this, uh, we've got a lot of momentum. We're really encouraged by how uh, it's going and we're seeing just a huge behavior change in audiences and people willing to, you know, sit. And if it's engaging content, if it's delivered in a, in a, in a really, you know, engaging and entertaining way, uh, it's relevant, it's timely, it's, you know, interactive is a huge part. There has to be some kind of interactivity, I think, between the speaker and the audience. Um, then it can work really well. In some cases, even better, I'd argue. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, I love going to live sports. I don't get to go to enough, as many Raptor games as I'd like to. But, you know, going to a Raptors game or a Leaf game is great. But you also got to deal with crowds and parking and, and someone might stand up in front of you and stands it in the most crucial part of the game. I love watching sports on TV. I mean, I've always got a great seat. I get great commentary from, you know, from the broadcast. Uh, I get instant replays. I never miss anything. So I think it's a little bit like that, where watching sports on TV is not the same as being there in person, right? And no one's going to say that it is, but it doesn't mean it can't be great. And and watching a speaker, you know, on a virtual setting, you know, on a virtual platform, it may not be the same as attending that conference in person and seeing the speaker, but it can still be great. And there's things that you can do virtually that you actually can't do live it can be more intimate it can be more interactive so so there's you know it's it's a, the world is changing very rapidly and our industry is and uh you know i i really think that going forward when we get to the other side of this we're going to see a combination the in-person conference and events will definitely return i have no doubt about that but i think we're also going to see virtual speakers uh speaking offerings continue and there'll be you know also hybrid conferences where some people will be attending in person some people will be attending virtually. You might have some of your speakers there in person on a stage and other speakers might be, you know, piped in on the screen. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all turns out, but uh, definitely uh, really encouraging the way things are moving uh, in, you know, a really difficult time for, you know, for our industry. And by the way, I think our industry, not only was it hit particularly hard, I think we'll be the last ones to return. I think, you know, restaurants have already started to open up and bars, you know, be able to open. We'll see sporting events and live music return. And then I think when that happens, then I think, you know, conferences, in-person conferences will then return. They'll literally might be the last thing along with like, you know, ramped up air travel and things like that to, to see a, a real return to the way uh, levels, at least of activity, things were before this all happened. So it's it's going to be a long road, but we're, we feel fortunate that we've got a, a pretty good path forward. No, at its core, I mean, you guys are in the business that everyone is now trying to be in, in many cases, where, where you have the credibility, the experience to shape the right story for the right audience for that particular client. Very early on, like pretty much when things began to shut down, I immediately began to take advantage of the technology and set up my own live events. Different genre, this was around digital product creation and bringing experts into the fold. We very quickly saw other, what I would call more community grassroots organizations who would hold events, try to pivot quickly. Um, one of the things that I tried to stick to, uh, except for the odd question about COVID, because how could you not talk about it, was uh, I tried to stick to the format of the content needs to be evergreen. The content needs to deliver value. To have some person speak about COVID and how they're dealing with it when this is like the beginning of April and governments around the world with experts at their disposal, don't know how to manage it. How is some executive for some product technology company going to be able to do that as well? So we stuck with that. I think for the people who are already into podcasts, which many organizations were, I mean, this has really been a boon for, 
for them because some of the, the workflow and, um, and the way that we are connecting with people to bring them together in these kinds of formats was already established. The difference though, and, and this is a podcast, this is, we're not going to put this on YouTube with, uh, with Martin and I on video. Mo, he's in a beautiful office. I'm in, I'm in my son's bedroom, so we're not going to put the video up. So I, so I put on a dress shirt for no reason you're saying? <laughs> It's all good. You know, you got to you got to be the part. You're a lawyer at heart. I'm surprised you're not in your robes. No, not at heart. Not at heart. All right. Long I, haven't gone, long a, gone. I haven't worn a tie to work in 25 years. So. I think I've worn a tie to work more recently than you have then. And so when, when we think about the format, what what's really happening? And I saw Elevate um, had you know, Guy Kawasaki in particular. Uh, they had him on early days. I don't know if Guy got paid for that appearance or that was just part of his own building of his brand. But it, it was it was an amazing experience. So I think based on what you've already built over 25 years and know well, it's really about what is the business model? What is, how does this monetize? The content is different. We're not worrying about having everyone fly or attend one location and all the inconvenience of doing that. We're really thinking about how can we distribute this broadly? So if you're a company that's reaching your employees, that's fine. That's a business you know really well. If you're a conference, it's how do you, how do you create enough value to drive that registration fee? I want to ask you a few questions that we ask every everyone who appears on the Backstage Project podcast. And uh, Martin is completely unprepared for these answers, so uh, we'll see what we're going to get. All right, fire away. So if you had to pick one moment that was most memorable in your career, what would that be? Okay, so I'm going to go back to Hurricane Carter. Um, so we start working with Ruben. I mentioned earlier, the movie comes out, things really take off. He's getting We're getting speaking requests from all over the world, Canada, the U.S., South America, Europe, Australia, and so forth. So I get a, uh, so, and I'm, a lot of the local events, I'm going with Ruben to him. I'm picking him up at his house. He lived in West, West End of Toronto, driving him to the events. I'm there with him beforehand, during, after, driving home after. So we go to an event one day. It's in, uh, I think it was in Oshawa, if I'm not mistaken, the east, east part of Toronto. And it's a public event. So it's in a theater. And so Ruben does his talk, packed theater. And at the end, there's a Q&A. And it's a community event, so some people actually brought their kids. And this, uh, this like, maybe 10 or 11-year-old kid puts his hand up, and they pick him, and he says, uh, Mr. Carter, um, this is one of the most exciting nights of my life. Uh, you're my hero. And my question is, do you have any heroes? And if so, who, who, who are they? And so Ruben looks at him and says, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. And he said, I don't really have any heroes except for one. Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela is my hero. And, and so the moderator says, have you ever uh, met uh, Nelson Mandela? And Ruben says, no, I've never met him. Okay, so that happens. But fast forward, literally maybe three days later, definitely within the week, I get an email out of the blue from an organization in Australia. And they're organizing something called World Reconciliation Day. And it's going to be in Melbourne um, in the big football stadium there, 50,000, 60,000 people. And it's a conference, it's an event, World, Concil World Reconciliation Day, and they have two keynote speakers. So one of the speakers is confirmed, and that's Nelson Mandela. And the second speaker they'd like to hire is Ruben Carter. So I do my due diligence. I make sure that this isn't some kind of a joke or some, someone's playing, and it check, everything checks out. So I reach out to Ruben. I said, hey, uh, Ruben, remember the other night when we were in that event and that kid asked you who your hero was? And he said, Nelson Mandela. And he said, yeah. And I said, well... What if I told you I had a potential speaking engagement for you in Australia, just you and Nelson Mandela, the two keynote speakers? And he said, Martin, you better not be joking. And I said, I'm not. I checked it all out. I would never do that to you. And so long story short, 
Uh, we confirmed the engagement. Ruben got on a plane, flew to Australia, uh, spoke at the event, had the chance to meet and spend some time with Nelson Mandela. I've got a great picture that that that, that uh, of the two of them. It turned out that uh, that Mandela actually did some boxing when he was younger, so they had a chance to talk about that as well. And uh, that was one of the coolest days ever. I mean, there's you know uh, just to have that opportunity to facilitate that, to be able to 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 see that come through, and uh, that was just a really really great day. So that's one that really stands out. It, Oh, that, that, that's a doozy. I mean, that, that's what I like to call serendipity. And that all comes from putting yourself or your business and your talent in, in a place for that to happen. That, that's amazing. All right. Yeah. Switch gears a little bit. And, and I know we've been going back, you know, down this yeah. memory lane a, a while here, which, which is great. I mean, you've had the, the stories are still so relevant today, even though they happened quite a long time ago. But looking back at those early days of your career and you can talk about law. You can talk about the business with Farah. It's completely up to you. You know, what do you wish you uh, you knew then that you know now? Oh, it's a good question. So, um, so you know what I what I tell I've been trying to tell my kids if they listen. I think they do, and, and anyone else who who asks who's you know at that point in their career where they're maybe you know stu- university student or just starting out in their career is one thing is the only way to know what you want to do uh, is first by figuring out what you don't want to do. So very few people have it figured out. Like there are a few people I know who just for some reason when they were 10 years old, they just always knew that they wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And, and, but most people don't have it figured out. And so, uh, you know, you, you can't, I think the way to find out what is, what you're meant to be doing, what you're, you know, best suited to be doing, it's a little bit of trial and error. You know, you get to know yourself as well as you can. But then you do something, and if it doesn't feel right, if it's not something that you're enjoying, you know, that you love, then you do something else, and you take, you obviously learn from it. You take what what, is, what was it about this particular job that I liked, and what is it that I didn't like, and and the next one should be a little bit closer to what you want. And so, so I think that that's that's something that that you know, when I went into law, uh, and I really, you know, I, I worked at a great firm, but I just it wasn't for me. I didn't know what it was. I thought something was wrong with me. I thought everybody else here uh, is working hard and, and just seems to be just, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and everything. And I was certainly working hard, but I just was kind of miserable the whole time. And I didn't know what it was. And I just didn't know myself well enough. And I didn't know what my strengths were and what the things were that really, you know, got me excited uh, about work. So, so as I got to know myself a little bit better and learn from that, I realized, you know, what it was. I realized I don't love conflict. And if you're a lawyer, you tend to be in situations of conflict most of the time. Um, I realized that I love, you know, and that, and we sort of stumbled into this idea and I, you know, I really love ideas. I'm curious. I love people and their stories. And so stumbled into something that, uh, that really put, played to my strengths more and suited my personality more. But, uh, you know, the only way we would have gotten to do this was by doing a couple of things before that, you know, weren't playing to my strengths and weren't, I wasn't really suited for. So I think just knowing that, that you don't have to get it right on the first time. And most people don't. And most people who, you know, a lot of our speakers who have been really successful, they didn't set out to do what they're doing. You know, they had a number of steps along the way, missteps. And, you know, there's a saying that innovation is iteration, right? And so, you know, you just iterate throughout your career. And each each thing you do should take you one step closer to that ideal thing. I happen to get very lucky because fairly early on, we kind of hit on something that really resonated with us. And, and, and uh, But I mean, I know a lot of people who, you know, had 
you know, many, many different jobs and roles before they, they found the thing that was really right for them. So that's, I think, what I would say is just knowing that you don't have to get it right on the first try and it's okay to try something and, and, and leave and do something else. I think I was a little bit too concerned about what people might think if I left law to do something else because I'd worked so hard to get to that point. But at the end of the day, you got to be happy. You know, you, you work, it's a lot of, a lot of your life you spend working and, and, you know, people say life's too short, but I think actually life's too long some, in some ways to be doing something that you hate. So, um, so that would be it. That was great advice. Great perspective on, on your journey. Yeah. You're, we're so lucky that we had a chance to catch up this way. Uh, you're, you're so wise. I mean, and it's not because you're a couple years older than me. (laughs) (laughs) I used to coach, didn't I coach you baseball and basketball? Yeah, probably. So, so Martin and I, and I've I've held myself back for an hour now, almost. I don't call him Martin. I call him Morty. I don't even think you've addressed me today, but he doesn't call me Mark. If you were going to call me anything, you've heard my nickname before on these podcasts. And, uh, and yes, I, Martin or Morty at the time, um, was, uh, it was, he was a role model. He was a mentor. He was a, a counselor in some other cabin. I can't, I can't remember. You probably weren't my counselor. We went to a sleepaway camp together. Yeah. I know that, uh, there's a, a couple other folks I've had on the podcast or will have that also have a, a common path through, a, a Halliburton, Ontario, uh, camp that we went to, but, um, I've always, I've always looked at, at Martin. Uh, I don't know Ferris so well, but looked at Martin as, someone who uh who knows what they want and goes after it and uh and anytime and those times have sometimes been years apart anytime i ask martin for help or ask him to come chat with me on a podcast uh, uh he always he always says yes and I'm, I'm grateful for for your trust in me and giving me your time to be able to catch up and chat or give me your advice i appreciate that it's fun good catching up and when uh when all this craziness is over, I'll have to do it in person again sometime soon. Yeah, maybe not on a basketball court because I'm, I'm not the, <laughs> the kid I used to be. Oh, trust me. Trust me. I'm not either. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. All right. All right thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to ReadySetGo.Design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.